Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Compact Nation podcast. We have some phenomenal interviews for you this week, but we're going to start by, of course, introducing ourselves in case this is your first time listening. I'm Emily Shields with Iowa Campus Compact. I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. Wonderful. So, Andrew, we have a couple of exciting things going on in Compact Nation. Can we take a couple minutes before we dive into the interviews to just provide some updates on that? Absolutely. Today, the day we are recording, is the day that we announced uh, our new 2017 Newman Civic Fellows. These are, in this case, 273 students from all across the United States, nominated by the presidents or chancellors of their institutions for their accomplishments as uh, participants in community change. Uh, We think of them as the next generation of public problem solvers. So they all have a track record of extraordinary work in their communities through their campuses and a real intention to continue this work going forward. I've had the chance to meet previous groups. They're amazing students. I've been reading through the you know, personal statements and statements written by the presidents in support of these nominees, and they're just a tremendous group. If you go to compact.org, uh, right on the front page, we've got a link, and you can read, again, a little bit about each of these students from their own perspective and the perspective of others who know them. And so it's just uh, always exciting. We bring them together uh, for a conference in the fall at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate, where they participate in a Senate simulation and kind of hone some of their skills in negotiation and in working toward compromises and shared solutions. And then we do a number of other things with them throughout the year to build their capacities as civic leaders and also to build a network of such students across the country. And so again, that was just a a very exciting thing about today. And then uh, a a different category of, of people that we honor and are pleased to do so at Campus Compact Uh, We are about to open the nomination season for the Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civically Engaged Faculty. And I think we've mentioned this award before. We'll be hearing from uh, and meeting the finalists and the winner of this, of the 2016 award, Robin Saha and a group of wonderful finalists, uh, very soon at our Continuums of Service Conference for our Western region in Denver. And we'll be starting the process also now for the next group. So if you know a faculty member who is a community-engaged scholar who, through their teaching and their research and other forms of engagement, are are doing great things with student learning, with community outcomes, with institutional change. Uh, Again, go to our website and you can nominate somebody. Uh, And again, it's always just a great process to see fabulous applications coming in from across the country of faculty members who are making a huge difference. Yeah, and if folks remember or haven't listened yet, I think it was two episodes ago, we interviewed um, one of last year's Newman Civic Fellows and last year's, and the 2016 Ehrlich winner, Robin Saha, on our podcast about environmental justice. Those were both really interesting perspectives. So if people want to, haven't listened to that one already, go back a couple episodes and hear from some of the past um, awardees of those those different programs. Episode six. That's right. That's right. Okay, so JR, do you want to 
give us a little preview of this episode's interview? Sure. This month, I sat down with Dr. Kathy Jordan, who is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota. She also serves as the founding editor for CES4Health.info. I also sat down with Dr. Andrew Furco, who's a professor of organizational leadership, policy, and development and an Associate Vice President for Public Engagement at the University of Minnesota. Andy also served as the former Senior Editor of the International Journal of Research on Service Learning and Community Engagement. In both conversations, we chatted about documenting engaged scholarship and the role engaged scholarship can play for creating a more just, informed society. Both of them are amazing, and I'll say this in my own words, amazing rock stars in the field. They're mentors and colleagues of mine, and it was an honor to sit down with them to talk about writing, publishing, and the work of Engage Scholarship for the Compact Nation podcast. So let's go to those conversations now. Dr. Kathy Jordan, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So I want to jump right in. In 2009, you were the founding editor for CESforHealth.info to ensure that scholars are recognized for products of community-engaged scholarship that are in forms other than just journal articles, and that that work can also be freely accessed by communities, and communities can benefit from that work as well. Can you tell our listeners a little more about why you started CES for Health and what your journey was to the point of founding the journal? Sure. Um, you know, I think part of it is a, a professional journey and uh, or I, I should say it's a personal journey and transformation. And then there was a professional outlet um, for that. Um, personally, I had been working in um, an inner city neighborhood in Minneapolis on childhood lead poisoning. And I was really um, seeing the benefits of community academic partnerships and community engaged scholarship, community-based participatory research on all sorts of things, on the community, on practice and policy, on the science itself, on my own institution. And that really led me to essentially a career change to pursue pretty much full-time in a way um, being a facilitator of catalyst for advocate for implementer of um, community engaged scholarship and ways to support that on campuses, my own and others. And one of the things that I had recognized was that there's a there's a huge divide between what sort of the academic partners in a community academic partnership do uh, to disseminate information, um, namely journal articles, for example, and what communities need, um, because they're not going to access or can't access uh, because of paywalls and that sort of thing, or just interest generally in reading um, a full journal article. And so I I was already seeing that there was this disconnect between the knowledge that was being generated in these partnerships and who ultimately had access uh, to that knowledge. And around this time, I was also getting very involved in the work of Community Campus Partnerships for Health. And it was between 2004 and 2007, CCPH had a U.S. Department of Education FIPSI grant. FIPSI stands for Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education. And that grant funded a project called Community Engaged Scholarship for Health Collaborative. And that collaborative was about eight health science schools around the country that were working 
collaboratively, but also on their own campuses to figure out ways to better promote and support, reward, recognize, that sort of thing, uh, community-engaged scholarship and community-engaged scholars. And there were several work groups that had formed as a result of that, um, that sort of aligned with what we had identified as three big gaps. And one of those gaps had to do with this idea that when academics and community members partner, the sort of academic dissemination happens um, because that is something that is uh, necessary for the academic to do. And often the academic will also be involved with uh, the community in creating things that are not journal manuscripts but are also scholarly work. Um, they are intended for a different audience. They look different um, and they're you know, typically more easily digestible. They're in different sorts of formats from, you know, video to, you know, interactive theater or whatever. Um, but that these things were um, not really disseminated broadly. And so the community being impacted was really sort of restricted to the community with which that product was created. And for the academic, these things didn't count uh, for their own reward and recognition systems because they were not peer-reviewed and broadly disseminated. And that led to then a piece of the next FIPSI grant that CCPH got that was called Faculty for the Engaged Campus. And it supported three projects that aligned with these three gaps uh, that we had identified in that first FIPSI project, one of which was this gap that I just described, and that was the impetus for creating CESforHealth.info. So CES for Health is meant to be a mechanism for rigorous peer review and then broad dissemination of online of these products of community-engaged scholarship that are not in journal manuscript form. Um, and I gave a couple of examples, uh, you know, the documentary or the online website or the interactive theater piece, uh, the policy brief, things like that. Um, and we're really trying to make broader community impact by allowing these products to be sort of freely downloaded, available, you know, on uh, a website accessible internationally, and then also creating this peer review mechanism and broad dissemination that allows these products to count as a piece of scholarship for the academic. Though it is peer-reviewed, have you received or have the faculty who have published in CES for Health received any pushback from their P&T review committees? And if so, what ways have you helped coach faculty or, or maybe even coach administrators, I guess, on learning and evaluating good engaged scholarship? Yeah. Um, so, yes, there's always some pushback uh, out in the world. I don't think that I've ever received a, a letter that says, you know, we reject. <laughs> Re reject this claim that this is a piece of scholarship. Um, I have actually received the opposite where I have received sort of unsolicited feedback from, um, I think it was in one case, the dean of an author uh, who was published in CES for Health. Um who was saying, thank you for letting me know, which is a routine thing that we do, letting me know that my faculty member published in CES for Health, um, we have struggled to figure out how to value and evaluate these sort of innovative products, and your service was very helpful in uh, evaluating this candidate who was ultimately uh, successful. Um, so, 
so there's there's that, although um, I think generally we hear that people still experience um, pushback in terms of kind of a hierarchy of what's valued, you know, the depending on your discipline, the, the peer-reviewed journal article in a high-impact disciplinary journal is, you know, always going to be sort of at the top, or if it's your disciplinary tradition, maybe it's the book as opposed to a journal article. But but there's always going to be that, that gold standard that most people are going to hang on to as absolutely necessary. If you don't have any of those, you're not going to be successful. Um, but more and more places are accepting and valuing this idea that uh, we need to be communicating science now more than ever to a more diverse audience in ways that uh, meet their needs um, and are you know not intended for an academic audience and so they need to be in different formats and that it takes a certain set of skills I call them the second set of skills you know we've learned everything we need to know that our um, you know uh, academic training programs put us through, they typically don't train us very well in ways of translating um, our research into innovative products and communicating to lay audiences. So that's the second set of skills that we have to develop along the way. And so I have gotten feedback that you know people are recognizing that um, this is valuable work. These scholars uh, and their community partners who are doing this work actually are not only rigorous, but they have, you know, broader and more comprehensive skill sets. Um, so I guess I, I have heard feedback on both sides of that. And I think that there's a window opening that we really need to uh, take advantage of, kind of drive a train through. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you had asked about how do we educate people? Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's a really multi-pronged, you know, sort of an approach. Um, one thing that I have seen uh, is that institutions are changing their promotion and tenure guidelines. At least some types of institutions or some types of promotional tracks within institutions are changing their guidelines to explicitly note that the audience you disseminate to doesn't need to be an academic audience and the way that you disseminate doesn't need to be a journal article. Um, and CES for Health has actually been named in some promotion and tenure guidelines as an acceptable um, venue for peer review and broad dissemination of these sorts of products, which is wonderful. Um, but I think those those sorts of institutions are recognizing that their job is is bigger um, and broader than communicating to um, an academic audience. Um, and they're placing value on that by codifying that in um, a promotion and tenure document, which really is a statement of the value. Uh, you know, it's a it's a value statement essentially of the institution. Um, so there are models out there that we can utilize to help other institutions, particularly similar types of institutions, um, make those sorts of changes. Um, several years ago, also as part of my work with CCPH, I worked with a. a small national work group to develop something that we call the, this is, this name is, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, the Community Engaged Scholarship Review Promotion and Tenure Package. Oh, wow. And, is, there yeah. an, is there an acronym for that? CES, CESRPT, <laughs> CESRPT package, yeah, a uh, big long acronym. But um, it had uh, two audiences. One was the faculty member going up for promotion or tenure, wanting to make their best case as a community-engaged scholar for promotion and tenure. And then 
the other audience, equally important, were academic uh, peers, administrators, promotion and tenure committee members who needed to better understand what was quality community engaged scholarship and how do you recognize that in a dossier. And so it's a it's a big document that really talks about um, what are quality characteristics of community engaged scholarship and, and community engaged scholars as uh, sort of modified and expanded uh, based on Glassa Huber and Mayeroff's work, which was a sequel to Ernest Boyer's Scholarship Reconsidered. Um, it talks about uh, really practical tips for, you know, how do you how do you find the scholarship in your engaged work and create um both traditionally and innovative products of scholarship. Um, how do you represent those things um, and tell that story of scholarship and dissemination to broad audiences, multiple audiences? How do you do that in your dossier? Examples of dossiers, sections, CV, essays, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and there's also a set of tables in that package, one that breaks down the research process into individual phases and one that breaks down the teaching process in individual phases. And the table demonstrates how engagement with communities at each of those stages enhances the quality or the rigor or the impact or whatever of that stage of work. And so I really try to, when I do, for instance, faculty development work, which I spend quite a bit of time on both at my own institution and others, I always disseminate these two tables because I feel like for the faculty member who's going up for promotion or tenure, these tables are sort of ammunition in a way, you know, to sort of dispel any myths that engagement would uh, detract from the rigor or the quality of their work. Um, it might give them ideas about how to present their work um, and the, the way that engagement has um, really fortified their work and, you know, sort of uh, solidify the importance of engagement in their career, for example. I also disseminate them to the administrators and P&T you know, members because it's another way for them to learn about and to sort of dispel some of their own preconceptions um, about what is quality community-engaged scholarship and the impact that engagement can have on the quality of the science or the quality of the teaching. So that's one of the important ways that I feel I work on the education piece. Yeah. Um, the other thing we do specifically with with uh, CES for Health is at the uh, request, so to speak, of the author, um, and we do have a question on our application that says, do you want us to communicate with anybody about your published uh, product? And if they say, yeah, you know, talk to my dean or, you know, send this person or this funder a letter, then we will... Um, send a letter to all of those named individuals. And the letter really describes not just, you know, congratulate your colleague on their successful publication at CES for Health, but it also educates the reader um, about what is community-engaged scholarship, what is CES for Health trying to do by way of providing this peer review and broad dissemination mechanism, and why should that make this thing that the, this colleague of theirs uh, published, why should that be considered scholarship. And so that really is meant to be a, an educational piece. Um, and that is the thing that I have occasionally gotten a response to. Like I mentioned the dean earlier who, who wrote back um, and just said, wow, this is great. Thank you for letting me know. And this was really helpful um, in this person's P&T process. Mm -hmm. That's excellent to think about it in that way, because even some of the work we've done here in Indiana, there is a disconnect in some ways 
between the way particularly younger faculty are wanting to research and the understanding or the evaluation of that work with senior uh, faculty in their department on their promotion and uh, tenure review committee. So I think that's fascinating work that you have done to help educate both ends of the spectrum, really. I'm curious to know, I want to go back to the products that are in some ways considered untraditional, but getting them peer reviewed and evaluated. Um, outside of CES for Health, what role do you see those products playing in the broader community? And why is that important? So I think that these products are, um, they're meant to be consumable, um, accessible products um, that are are often action oriented or you know meant, meant to sort of improve um, practice, for example, and and so in a way they are very applied, um, they're very translational, and uh, it, it takes you know what would have been inaccessible you know findings from a research project or something like that that might sit behind a firewall in a journal. Um, and and puts it out there for a broad audience to be able to take action on. And what we've really tried to do with CES for Health is to publish products that fall into sort of two categories. One is the product that somehow disseminates the work, the findings, so to speak, whatever that might be. Um, and those things tend to be things like, you know, documentaries or Maybe it's a policy brief to translate findings for a policy audience. Um, but then the other thing that's interesting is we're, we're saying to community-engaged scholars that you often create things along the way in your work that would be useful for community audiences, other community academic partnerships, and don't just wait to put something out there about the findings of your work or some end result or outcome. Publish these things that you've created that are more like tools that others could also use. So an evaluation instrument or a training manual um, or some sort of a, a online intervention or, you know, something like that. You know, we're saying these are legitimate scholarly products that the world ought to know about. And so um, let's put them out there and let's um, utilize this author application that we require as part of CES for Health submission to help people who are users of CES for Health figure out how they might utilize this in their work. Can they take this, lift it, apply it in their community, in their own programmatic work or maybe a research project, or could they modify it in some way that would work in their locale? And so that's what we're really trying to do um, is to get these products used in ways that you know other folks um, find helpful. Mm -hmm. Rather than other academics just citing them for their right. work too. It's, right. like, it's actually in communities and actionable. Uh, when we think about where we are in today's society, you know, I often hear from folks, our society is more split than we've ever been. Um, empathy levels are, are down. Do you see the products that are untraditional in some ways, uh, for academics at least, uh, that are finding homes in CES for Health? Do you think that these products can be tools for a more just society? You know, I do, because I think... Um, when we think about justice, we think about one of the things we think about is access, equal access to information. And, you know, our system in academia is set up to not be equal access to information. It's been a very 
hierarchical or elitist um, and exclusive, you know, sort of system. And so things like non-traditional products or innovative products and mechanisms that make these things broadly disseminated and, you know, essentially open access, you know, free download, that sort of thing. This levels the playing field and provides, you know, everyone, regardless of whether you've got a subscription to a journal or not, or if you've got, you know, access to, you know, the library at a university or not, you can still get that same information. So I, I think it is about, um, I think it is about justice. And I think that has to do with, you know, sharing information broadly, transparently, and leveling the playing field. If you could give one piece of advice to someone, I would say almost an untraditional scholar, I, I hate using that word untraditional <laughs> in some ways, but thinking about folks who are producing more of um, documentaries, blog posts, and such, and they're finding ways to um, have that work evaluated and, and, you know, maybe finding CES for Health as, as one outlet where to submit that work. What, what piece of advice would you give someone who is, is seeking that path? Um, well, I guess, you know, advice about what? I mean, one of the things that I get asked about a lot is how do you be successful in your career doing this kind of work, which really means how do you present yourself for career advancement, you know, annual reviews and promotion and tenure and that sort of thing. And I think that one of the things that community-engaged scholars need to do a really good job on is helping other people understand why this is scholarship. And if, if the individual, um, academic scholar, doesn't understand that, um, then nobody else is going to understand that. So, for example, when I'm doing faculty development work, um, I will also t often talk to uh, faculty who are junior or they're new to this sort of work, and they say, well, this community engagement stuff, this, this probably belongs in my service section of my dossier. And, you know, I, I sort of say, whoa, time out, because, you know, if this is your research and you happen to be doing this in a community engaged way, or this is your teaching and you happen to be using engaged uh, pedagogy, that's still your research and that's still your teaching. You need to be talking about your engagement as interwoven with and contributing to the value of your research and your teaching. Don't marginalize it by putting it in a service section that typically is not as valued as the research and teaching aspects of faculty work. Um, and certainly if faculty members are not doing a good job of talking about their engaged scholarship as scholarship by putting it in their uh, research or teaching, or sometimes it's just called scholarship section of their, their dossier, and they're sticking it in the service section, then certainly their promotion and tenure committee uh, members or their boss is not going to view it as scholarship either. So that's, I think, the, the number one big mistake mm -hmm. <laughs> that uh, faculty can make, and I guess that would translate into, that's my strongest advice. Yeah. It makes me think about mentoring, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of Carrie Ann O'Mara and her work that she's done around faculty culture, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and primarily around finding a mentor. And we know that the folks who are drawn to this work tend to be female. Uh, they tend to be people of color. 
And so those are also individuals who are least likely to receive an informal mentor in higher education. Um, And, you know, I think about the fact that they're also the most drawn to community engagement. And so in many ways, I think about it being a, a mentoring issue. And how do we find the right mentors who can coach us on documenting our community engaged scholarship? and looking at our community-engaged teaching, our scholarship, our professional service, and, and how they all intersect. What are some good outlets, do you think, for people to find to find a mentor if there isn't one in their department? So I think that um, I'm going to sort of do a threefold kind of thing here. Um, one, one thing that has to happen is that the, the people who are established in this area need to say, it is my responsibility to mentor the up-and-coming members of, of this field um, and to be finding ways to do that, to be, you know, doing some faculty development, to, you know, um, take junior faculty under their wing, to help graduate students, you know, find their path in this way. It really, it really needs to be a professional commitment of people who are experienced um, in this area. The second prong, I think, is... Um, there's no amount of networking that is too much networking. You know, you really have to understand who's doing what in this field. Um, you know, going to not only um, your disciplinary conferences, but going to engagement types of conferences, whether it be, you know, CCPH's conference or the Engaged Scholarship Consortium uh, conference, et cetera, um, or IR Slice. You, you got to get in there and meet the people who are established and, um, if we can have sort of the, it's almost like supply and demand, you know, if we can have the established folks saying, I'm available, I will, you know, uh, be your informal mentor or a resource to you. And there are uh, the novice or the junior faculty coming saying, I need mentorship. That could happen at these sorts of conferences. And it does. I mean, those are, you know, mechanisms that I think conference organizers are, are thinking about, but we probably need even, even more of that. Um, the other thing that I, I wanted to mention, um, the resource that I'm going to mention here is not as well developed or well known uh, as compared to CES for Health, but there's sort of a, a sister project, so to speak, called Faculty Database, no, da- FacultyPortfolio.org. I actually should figure that. I think it's FacultyDatabase.org um, or .info rather, um, and it is a searchable repository of people who are established in community-engaged scholarship who are willing to either serve as a mentor to um, a junior faculty member or a more novice community-engaged scholar, or they are willing to be an external reviewer in the promotion and tenure process for community-engaged scholars. And so you can use this, excuse me, you can use this searchable uh, website to uh, enter certain criteria um, and you can kind of land on uh, the type of person who you're looking for and you can reach out to them and request either mentoring or, um, or, you know, the external review uh, service. now, I think we need more of that sort of thing. I think that it needs to be um, more robust with CCPH's attempt to do this through faculty database.info. It is kind of narrow in that it is 
uh, even more so than CES for Health. It is fairly restricted to the health disciplines. CES for Health construes health very broadly. I kind of joke that I can make anything be health. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really can. Um, but with faculty portfolio or faculty database.info, rather, it is a little bit more restrictive. Um, so we need more of that kind of service. Um, and, you know, the organizations that are the you know, the guild organizations or the societies, um, professional associations, you know, need to take on projects like that to provide the infrastructure for the senior and the junior folks to to meet each other um, and to establish these sorts of relationships. Mm -hmm. I would agree. If folks are interested in being a mentor through faculty-database.info and they fall in that health category, what's mm -hmm. the process to become a mentor? Um, you can go to faculty-database.info and there is a little uh, link on the top uh, bar that says become a faculty mentor and or portfolio reviewer Great. and you click on that and you fill out a little application. So it sounds really easy. Good. Yeah, it is easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, if folks are interested in submitting their work to CES for Health, what is the process? So um, as a, a prospective author, you would go to www.cesforhealth.info and uh, there is a submit a product uh, link there. And it's um, sort of a two-part thing. There is an application that has uh, about 12 questions on it that really kind of walks through the process of describing what is this product's purpose and who is it intended for. and why is it scholarly? What is it grounded in? Um, what came before that you were building on or what kind of gap were you, you know, trying to fill with this? Um, describing the, the project that led to this product and then describing the development of the product itself, describing any impact that you know of or significance, uh, some reflection on strengths and limitations. And then that application is one of the primary things that's reviewed um, by our, our peer reviewers, academic and community peer reviewers. And then, of course, there's the product itself. So you write this application, and then you also upload your policy brief, or you send a link for the documentary online or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's the, the process, and then it gets assigned to reviewers, um, as I mentioned, both community and academic folks um, who've been trained uh, by me, which is kind of unusual. Typically, reviewers don't get a lot of training in that task, but we do spend about an hour and a quarter training every reviewer at CES for Health. Um, and then the author will receive a decision that is much like a journal uh, decision. It's either accept, revise, or reject, and they'll get comments, synthesized comments from um, a set of reviewers as collated by the editor and uh, hopefully that guides resubmission if that's the decision or, you know, guides further improvement uh, if it was rejected. Dr. Kathy Jordan, founding editor of CES for Health. Thank you for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Andrew Furco, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you, JR. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you as well and to sit down with a colleague to to talk about this work. I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years, most namely through the International Association for Research on Service Learning and Community Engagement, and then also through the journal uh, from the association, the International Journal of Research on Service Learning and Community Engagement. You served as senior editor for that journal, uh, yes. stepping off of that just this past year. Will you talk a little bit for our listeners about the background of IJR Slice, uh, its niche in the field, and how it all really got started? 
Uh, certainly, certainly, and and thank you. I know we like very long names, so uh, affectionately, the association is affectionately known as Iyer Slice. I think that's a little easier, um, and and the journal uh, is uh, IJRSLCE. But um, but thank you for asking about the journal and the association. It really came, I think, at a very important part in the growth in our field as um, the journal uh, really was an outgrowth of a publication series called The Advances in Service Learning Research, which was part of an annual conference that was started in 2001 to bring together researchers and practitioners who were interested in advancing the study and practice of service learning through re research. And at the time, there wasn't really any forum to um, to have pre uh, researchers present their research. And so we thought we'd start a conference and I was uh, very privileged to host the very first one at, when I was at over at UC Berkeley in 2001. And um, with the intention that we would hopefully be able to continue it over the years. And I'm happy to say we're now in our 17th year of hosting it at uh, and different universities have hosted it um, over the years. Uh, and, and as part of what we wanted to do from that conference was also to then put some spotlight on some of the best research papers that were delivered at that uh, conference. And with that, we developed, we got a contract with Information Age Publishing to produce an annual series uh, called the Advances in Service Learning Research. And then, um, and so that was published every year with the conference. And then when the uh, conference ultimately turned into an association, um, the Ireslice Association, um, the advances in service learning research uh, work um, branched off uh, because Ireslice decided, the association decided that it wanted to not only focus on service learning research, but also research on community engagement as well. So the advances in service learning research uh, series went to the American Educational Research Association, special interest group there, uh, and it's still operating there. And then Ireslice as an association developed this new journal. And what we wanted was a journal that would be an open journal, meaning it wouldn't just be um, for papers delivered at the conference, but anyone could per, uh, submit uh, papers, research papers, that it would be peer reviewed, that it would uh, focus on broader issues of, of engagement, not just service learning, but also broader issues of community engagement across the educational spectrum. So uh, primary, secondary schools, as well as um, post-secondary education, and as well as being international in focus. So it really broadened the, the scope of what was previously the annual uh, monograph uh, advances service learning research series. And so um, we're now in our fifth year of the journal. Our, our, our publications are getting more robust uh, with deeper um, research analyses and, and greater questions being asked in the field and really deepening the field in many ways. And we're getting more international papers. Uh, and this year we had the papers from Europe and South America and Asia. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite exciting to see. It has been exciting. I've watched its evolution over the last five years. And I remember the early conversations being about our niche is research and rigorous research in this field. Do you feel in the five years since the journal has uh, come about and grown that it's helped provide or legitimize the field in some ways? There's always this conversation about legitimizing the field. Do you feel like the journal has helped shape that conversation? I, I hope so. Uh, I think it's definitely contributed in a number of ways. Um, first of all, it has helped um, 
really build a body of evidence for the potential impacts of service learning and community engagement. But beyond that, what it's doing is it's opening up um, uh, conversations about different methodologies and, and methods that are important in research on in this work. You know, we've had we've tended to have very traditional paradigms uh, leading the research efforts, you know, experimental designs and other kinds of things which are still needed. But as we know in this work and community-engaged work that we have participatory methods that are very, very important and very informative to our, our knowledge base. And we are learning more about how to do high-quality participatory research through this work. And I think the journal has really exposed a lot of the, the limitations, the challenges of experimental work uh, and some of the benefits of doing more participatory kinds of work. So it's really raising... Um, a lot of awareness about some of the different methods that are important. And secondly, I would say that it's really bringing into the fold um, non-U.S. perspectives, and I would say non-Global non, um, North perspectives, into this work. And I think that that's that, that perspective, those perspectives have predominated the field, and we're learning so much about what's happening in other countries around uh, service learning community engagement, and um, I think it's helping us in the U.S. do our work better as well. Uh, sticking with that same theme, but shifting gears just a little bit, while we're providing a platform for more rigorous research and a home for these articles through this publication outlet, how do we at the same time ensure that the outcomes and impacts of higher education community engagement uh, are seen outside of higher education, and what can that look like? Yes, that's a great question. And, you know, dissemination takes many forms, as we know. And in higher education, we uh, privilege the written word. You know, we, we value the written word. And we prefer dissemination venues that um, are done through the written word, that uh, are peer-reviewed, and work that builds on and, I would say, extends existing knowledge. You know, and sometimes... Unfortunately, that existing knowledge has been built on particular mindset or points of view that um, perhaps uh, are focused on a, a dominant frame and and uh, privilege the dominant frame. And then those th that knowledge is perpetuated. And I think part of what uh, we need to think about in terms of dissemination of our work is that we have to look at different forms of dissemination. I think that's very, very important. Different forms will resonate with different constituents, stakeholders, and um, and partners. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to take take stock in. And so, uh, for those outside of the academy, uh, we need to think about perhaps um, uh, forms that are different from the written form. Although, um, and even those who consume written forms, uh, we need to think about uh, other forms besides journal articles and technical pieces. So, you know, we're seeing more blogs, we're seeing more um, videos, we're seeing stories being told. And I would say, in terms of disseminating the work, the face-to-face -face collaboration and story exchange and information exchange um, is probably the most effective. And the reason I say that is because it's one thing to write something up without knowing w how that's going to be consumed once it's out there. It's another thing to be in front of an audience, to look them straight in the eye, and to be able to provide information and get that initial 
immediate feedback on it. Um, it, it, it not only keeps us honest and, and open, but it also um, allows us to be more balanced in our view, I believe, because people can see when you're being um, forthcoming and with, with all the data and information and the results. And I think that that, that face-to-face becomes very important. And for many outside the academy, that's the way that they prefer to get information. Mm-hmm. So, so I think all, all these forms for us within the academy need to be considered if we want our work to be impactful and, and utilized and, and accessed in, by those who can benefit from it. It's interesting. I think sometimes uh, the skill sets of writer and the skill sets of presenter don't always go hand in hand. Sometimes you're really good at mm-hmm. one and possibly not the mm-hmm. other. What are some outlets or things for faculty to consider um, to strengthen one or the other? Well, I think um, I think for a lot of us who are perhaps excellent writers but not great presenters is really to um, uh, have experiences with good presenters uh, and being aware, first of all, acknowledging that we're not great presenters, perhaps. And secondly, then to really immerse ourselves in presentations that are well delivered and to really um, take on some of those tips about, um, you know, I, I, one of the, uh, I hate to say this, one of the worst presentations I went to was on presentation on experiential learning at a conference. And the person read his paper on experiential learning. Uh, Yeah. And it was, it was, it was very funny. It was like the learner needs to be actively engaged in the learning process. You know, all the while people were falling asleep. Right. Right, right. So I think, you know, part of it is, you know, I, I try to, I try to myself try to pick up, you know, cues and, and tips from, from others who I think that was really great. And what did that person do? And, um, you know, and not have that point, you know, 10 point PowerPoint, uh, where no one can, you know, you have so much on the paper and all that and visuals and things like that. So, uh, um, I don't have a good answer other than to really just be, first of all, like, to acknowledge what our limitations and strengths are, but secondly, to be attuned to, um, how others are doing it and, and to, and to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, if people are great presenters, faculty are great presenters, but they may struggle with putting their ideas into a good academic form. There there are outlets out there, like, for instance, pen to paper that we partner with you on to bring that to life each year for faculty to explore their academic writing. I know mm-hmm. our slice does pre-conferences focused mm-hmm. around that as well. So those are some good outlets, too, I think, for yeah. those who need uh, help with formulating their their ideas and putting it on paper. Yeah, thank you for championing that work as well, because you've really have um, uh, brought some great uh, shine, a uh, great spotlight on that. And so, thank you for the work you've done to champion that. Thank you, I, I appreciate that, and we appreciate your support uh, each year on that program. Uh, the journal support your support to to keep it going and providing knowledge base as well has been excellent. So, so thank you. So as we think about dissemination of our work and academic publishing, um, what does that look like for a more just society? Because we're living in a time where it seems uh, people are not finding understanding across difference. Folks are drawing lines in the sands. There are clear divides. Uh, people are, are saying evidence doesn't exist for for certain um, for certain things. So 
you know, it just makes me think about how some of that evidence is there. And, and some of our academics, particularly in this field, are doing great work. How can that be translated into understanding for a more just society? Yeah, that's an excellent question. We are in interesting times, aren't we? Yes. Um, yes. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, we've been having some discussions about this in my own institution as a public uh, university, and we are in the midst of uh, developing an action plan, uh, um, actually, thanks to the compact. Um, and um, we've raised a lot of these issues about what principles and values we need to espouse. And I think for public universities, we are moving more towards being much more neutral on issues that uh, all perspectives matter, and they do, but that we end up not really espousing values because we want to remain neutral and this sense of being um, pressured to be neutral. And I think ultimately we have to stand up for something, right? Mm -hmm. We can't just we can't just be neutral and accept everything. Um, so th that's, I think, a, a, one of the implications of this work, uh, community engaged scholarship in particular, in that it is ultimately about um, addressing uh, society's most intractable issues. It's about um, uh, being attentive to the needs of society and integrating the work we do within the academy with issues that are important to society. So, uh, you know, my philosophy on this is, is if institutions of higher education you know, these are institutions that supposedly supposedly are replete, replete with experts and expertise. If institutions of higher education aren't going to address these complex and challenging societal issues, then who will? Mm -hmm. um, these are complicated, complex issues. So, um, uh, so I think it's very, very important for us who are do this work to understand that we have that responsibility of building a just society and. Um, but I, I, I think that for community-engaged scholarship, it's also about institutional and educational reform and improving our educational systems. Um, and it's about changing the way we do higher education. So uh, I think, for example, one of the things that we know that predominates despite all this great service learning community engaged work is that we still have a transactional model of education this one way information exchange and delivery that's the predominant way we do higher we do education and so i see community engaged scholarship as a way to empower stakeholders uh, including students and and external partners to play a more active role in the learning and in the discovery and the service that we do. And it's about engaging the talents and the assets of all of us, not just those with degrees and lots of letters after their names. So part of it is engaging us all in a more, um, it's about issues of power, right? Mm -hmm. It's about saying that knowledge doesn't just resign the academy, um, it's it's not just those who are quote unquote experts who get to decide which knowledge should guide decisions and it's about equalizing the knowledge base and those who contribute to the development of knowledge to be able to to contribute and ultimately it's that deliberative dialogue that we have across um, different different uh, communities and stakeholder groups and constituents and uh, that that that's ultimately go going to be what's going to help us towards 
using this as a way to build a more just society. Because unless we embody the practice of equality and equity and 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 uh, knowledge that's distributed across communities, it's going to be hard to do uh, to build a just society when we're saying this is this is the knowledge base that we need to be attentive to the predominant knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And you've done a ton of work around uh, your engaged department initiative and the model that you have out there, helping folks understand the shared public purpose of a discipline and how that affects individual Mm -hmm. faculty choices, as well as those messages we convey to our students. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in action? Uh, Sure. So the engaged department program that we have here is built on a lot of uh, models uh, that are found nationally about the, and it's really built on the principle that ultimately um, the strongest predictors of advancing and institutionalizing this work are the, is our faculty support and involvement in this work. Um, And faculty play a key role. They're here at the Academy the longest (laughs) Uh, students come and go, administrators come and go, you know, but the faculty are here, the, the ones who, who really build the institutional culture. And so faculty have to be involved. And part of the engaged department philosophy is that um, a lot of the work that we see in in institutions of higher education uh, is, is heavily relying on individuals doing the work. Ultimately, to institutionalize the work, this work has to be embedded within the academic fabric. And because faculty's major affinity, primary affinity, is not with the institution, but with the discipline, that we have to take a look at the disciplines and how to embed this work into the disciplinary frames and and uh, curricular and uh, agendas. And so the engaged department program is built on getting teams from department from a department uh, or departments where the department chair must be a member of the team, must have at least um, a couple of tenure track faculty, faculty who are going to be there for a while, as well as other partners, students, community partners, others, instructors. And to sit down and start with the question, what are your disciplinary disciplines, departments, priorities? What do you hope to accomplish as a department? And then to see, to ask the questions, how might community engaged practices, whether they be tied to research or teaching or outreach service, help advance those discipline uh, departmental priorities? And so it's using community engagement as a strategy to help departments achieve what they want to achieve. And that's a way of embedding it. And then uh, the way our, our our program works as we the team spends six months um, uh, developing uh, a plan. Then they spend a year implementing the plan. We have a rubric at the beginning that they do a self-assessment of how institutionalized engagement is in their department, and then they do that at the end, and we can measure progress. We we currently fund nine departments, and then the other thing is it's a learning community, so the departments uh, share with each other. Um, lessons learned, developments, uh, challenges, et cetera. So it's it's really a way of embedding it into the academic frame. And it's been uh, quite successful. We've funded 42 departments over the years. Wow, that's really amazing. That's an excellent model for embedment. 
uh, I can just tell you a couple of results of that. So sure. we've had a couple of departments that have um, revised their promotion tenure guidelines. We've had a couple of departments that have built um, community engagement strands. So they had these loosely coupled or not even connected courses. And so they've brought those together and have a, almost like a minor that students can select. Um, we've had um, uh, uh, in the faculty activity reporting, where um, primarily uh, community-engaged work was put in the service section. Now it's embedded into the research and teaching sections. So we've had a, quite, a, quite a substantial development that I think have really have been long-lasting in, in, many, in many regards. That's really great. If folks want to find out more information about your model, how do they best learn about that? Certainly. So we have the the action plans and the uh, the list of the departments on our uh, website, which is engagement.umn.edu. That's our main uh, public engagement website. And there's a, a, a drop down box uh, uh, for folks to to find the engaged department program. Great, great. One last question for you before we go. If you sure. had, uh, let's say, a, a pre-tenure faculty member who is interested in engaged scholarship and that's the path they want to take as, as being an engaged scholar, uh, what piece of advice would you give them? Oh, that's a great question. I, <laughs> um, I, would, I would first of all say that they uh, need to know what they're getting into, right? Um, this work takes time. It uh, may not be rewarded. It can be controversial. Uh, but I think ultimately, if they're passionate about doing this kind of work, to stick to it and to do it. Uh, it can be very rewarding. Um, and it, it's very easy to get discouraged. Uh, and But in the end, um, I think especially in today's times where we see more and more scholars interested in this work, there are networks and opportunities to build learning communities and network with others who perhaps outside of their disciplines, they may not find that uh, kinship within their discipline, but outside their disciplines, there may be many networks to connect with that could be very, very valuable for them and to not get discouraged around this work. I was highly discouraged when I started out. I was told it would ruin my career. I'd never get a job anywhere. Mm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, ultimately what you're passionate about is what's going to keep that fire in your belly and keep you going. And I think it's um, to finding those outlets that are going to be supportive. And ultimately you want to do the work that you're going to find rewarding and valuable and you feel that you can contribute. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, to really know what you're getting into, but also know that um, uh, there are places to, to get some support for it. Mm -hmm. And this work is needed now more more than ever. And I agree. I, I would I say agree. Our Slice, as well as Campus Compact, those two are really great places to find homes, good homes, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and other like-minded individuals who can mm -hmm. mentor and help us think about that. Uh, tell us a little more uh, just about Our Slice, for if we have any listeners on Compact Nation who aren't sure what that is and how that could be a good home for them. So ISI, the International Association for Research on Service Learning Community Engagement, is a, a resource. It's an association specifically focused focused on 
um, looking at the research in this field to help provide the evidence of what works, what doesn't work, to really look at the impacts, how to do this work better, looking at the practice, looking at impacts on faculty, on the students, on the communities especially, and also on the institutions. It's an international association, so it's a great way to really uh, connect with a, a broader field of, of that's emerging and growing, I would say, in leaps and bounds over the last uh, five five years. And it's about being able to um, showcase the work that's happening to provide a scholarly presentations, but also um, research that practitioners can use and, and do their work better. Uh, the Irish has an annual conference this coming year. It's going to be in, in Galway, Ireland in um, September. Um, we encourage people to go to the, our website uh, and, um, and get more information about that. Uh, there's um, also a graduate student network. We see more graduate students wanting to do this work. And so there's a, a very robust network there. We give awards for outstanding dissertation, outstanding uh, research and career in this careers in this work. So uh, it's really a way to honor and acknowledge and deepen the, the research that's happening. And I hope um, uh, anyone who's interested in joining to please um, um, take a look and uh, we'd be happy to have you as a member. Dr. Andrew Furco, thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you so much, JR. It was a pleasure. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Hopefully you enjoyed those interviews with people just doing really incredible work in the field to move things in a different direction. I think we're just going to briefly touch on a couple things that stood out to all of us. And I'll just start with, I think it was Kathy who said, um, who really made the point that access to information is social justice. So often, you know, we talked to Tania Mitchell last episode, we talk about doing social justice projects in the community. We don't always focus on how the work we're doing can be social justice in and of itself. And that is just a really interesting concept to me and a, a very motivating way of thinking about what we're doing, you know, building bodies of knowledge that rest with experts of course is is important in terms of being able to move things forward but that we really have an important mission in terms of getting that expert knowledge to communities where it could make the most difference that just that stood out to me quite a bit yeah i was just struck by uh i mean in some ways this is just something i was led to think about through both of these conversations which is you know we're, we're obviously in a moment where the long-standing tendency in American life toward anti-intellectualism is on the rise again. And and I think sometimes people in the academy can view community engagement as pushing against kind of intellectual life. And what was striking to me was, you know, the the just the very fact that community engaged work requires rigor and requires the the values that all of our best intellectual work, uh, you know, kind of rests on, and that sometimes that the research that we do will take forms that are not accessible to everybody. There is research that benefits me that I can't understand, like I can't read medical journals and make full sense of them. I can't, and that's okay. And then at other times, we have ways where research findings can really be shaped uh, and communicated in ways that directly serve people. But we ought to be comfortable with that interplay and the fact that. Some things we can't understand may still be, we benefit from having those happening in our world, but also there's an obligation when it's possible 
to share knowledge and information and to create it in ways that are accessible to communities. I would agree. I was struck as I was listening to Andy in particular talk about, because he comes from a more traditional research journal, how this work can be translated uh, into the real world, for lack of a, of a better better terminology. And I was in a conversation the other day with one of our colleagues from Missouri, Tabitha Underwood, and we were having this exact conversation, and we began to talk about libraries and the role of public libraries in helping translate uh, our work into um, more accessibility, being more accessible to communities and the role that they could play in doing that. And it's something that actually I never even really thought about. I know other fields uh, within higher education have done that before, but at least within community engagement in higher education, it's not something I've ever considered the role of a public librarian and working with researchers to help translate some of our more academic journals into everyday useful Context and so I thought that was kind of a just an interesting aside that I've had since my conversation with both Kathy and Andy Fantastic. Well, we're gonna I think go right into Pop culture corner so that this doesn't get to be you know too long of a podcast for folks to stick with us Um, Andrew, do you want to start with yours? Sure Um, so I spent a decent chunk of uh, the other night watching the U.S. World Cup, uh, U.S. Men's National Team's World Cup qualifying match with, this is soccer, I don't know if I said that, uh, against (laughs) Panama. So lots of other people, uh, including Emily, from what I understand, got to watch the 6-0 victory uh, earlier uh, in the week, I think, or last week or whatever it was against Honduras. I watched the 1-1 draw, kind of, you know, what a lot of people who don't like soccer kind of fear if they... And I watched it on my phone because there's like a, f- a free app where you could watch the game. And uh, and I, so I want to make, I think, a completely cliched point about this, but also it was striking to watch. You know, when you watch the U.S. men's national soccer team, you see, you know, the great diversity of the United States represented on the field. So you have players with very direct links to lots of other countries who themselves are immigrants or their parents were immigrants. Many of them are are kind of bicultural in in really strong ways. Players who are playing abroad, players who are based in the United States. The the U.S. goal was a a beautiful combination between an 18-year-old American of Croatian descent who plays in Germany uh, hooking up with a 34-year-old uh, Clint Dempsey, so this is Christian Pulisic is the 18-year-old, Clint Dempsey, the 34-year-old, who's kind of like, you know, one of the, the grandfathers of the team at this point. And, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, it is it is what it is, right? Uh, but he's nearly twice the age of Christian Pulisic, and he himself uh, came from, he comes from Texas. Dempsey grew up in this very bilingual, bicultural environment and, you know, has talked about how that has benefited him in his life as a soccer player. And it's just, for me, a kind of great thing to watch. Obviously, soccer is not at the center of U.S. culture, but it is actually at the center of youth sports participation in in many, many communities. And, you know, I walk um, past a school on my way to the subway every day that is almost entirely Latino, the student population. And, you know, there's this little paved schoolyard outside it 
where kids are just playing a level of soccer that's phenomenal. I, like I just stand there with my mouth open at the skills these kids have, and you know I I just excited. I'm excited about kind of the America that is represented by this team, and they've had their struggles. They are not one of the greatest teams in the world, but I take tremendous pleasure when they find ways to succeed. Oh, Andrew, you really make sports sound romantic. <laughs> I, I am not a sports fan by any means, but listening to you talk, I'm like, dang, I need to watch more sports. So, Well, the, the story behind U.S. soccer in general it never ceases to be fascinating. Once you dig in, honestly, my husband's always filling me in. So, yeah, if you want uh, romance and intrigue, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Well, I typically stick to news channels because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> Not that people who like sports aren't nerds either. I think we're all pretty nerdy if we're sitting here doing a podcast about community engagement and higher education. Let's go ahead and own that right now. But I watch way too much news. I will say I watch all different forms of news outlets because I like to be well-rounded. But the problem is I go to bed the other night and I dreamt that Andrew called me to let me know that we had secured Jared Kushner for an episode of the Compact Nation podcast uh, and that I would need to interview him. So in my mind, I pictured my parents' house in rural Indiana as a perfect place to sit down with Jared Kushner and have this talk. And so on my way to my parents' house on this long country road, I get a call from Andrew to remind me that uh, Campus Compact is a 501c3 nonprofit and there is no way that I should bring up the Russians at all in any part of the conversation. And it was the most ridiculous thing ever. And in fact, I woke up before I even got the chance to sit down with Jared Kushner to talk about our work. Um, uh, You know, definitely not the Russians because I was not allowed to talk about that. But uh, I I didn't get to see the outcome. So it was a little a little sad to know that that dream didn't come true or I get to learn what happened. But, you know, if I'm dreaming about the news, current events, and the Compact Nation podcast, I really need to find something else, a hobby. Maybe I need I to watch need soccer, vacation. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hobby, vacation, it's clear there's some, you need something. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, you know, I, I might recommend that listeners at this moment just pause the podcast for just a moment. Think a little bit about what it means that I am appearing as this disciplinary figure in JR's case. Uh, and then just start the podcast up again. We'll, we'll be here. Yeah, don't leave us entirely because I am so excited for my Pop Culture Corner share. I often have these things I get in on and then I just sort of annoy everyone in my life by... Um, basically harassing them until they listen to or read or watch whatever it is I'm obsessed with. And I have a new one. It's the new S-Town podcast. Um, it comes out of the tradition of Serial, the podcast that started from This American Life. So it comes out of a lot of radio traditions that I love. It's the third iteration of Serial um, and is very different. And it is an absolutely incredible story uh just a very complicated and nuanced story that is about i don't want to give away very much but it's about rural life it's about the lgbtq community it's about genius and social connection and so many other things i can't even get into it and it takes so many different twists and turns and it is just really kind of haunting me in a good way i think um, but it's so good, and it actually 
connected a lot as well to uh, a book I'm reading, which is The Politics of Resentment by Dr. Kathy Kramer, which I'm reading because for our next podcast episode, I am interviewing her. Um, Both the podcast and the book talk a lot about rural life, rural consciousness, just the different things that that means in this country. And it's um, obviously, I think, been recognized as an important conversation for our country to be having right now, um, and one that's come to the forefront over the last year. And um, I saw a lot of threads between the two that are um, interesting and, again, kind of haunting and don't necessarily provide all the answers, but... um, definitely get you thinking in different ways. So I cannot recommend S-Town enough as a podcast and also to uh, turn it, tune in next month um, when we talk to Dr. Kathy Kramer, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison professor, about her research about rural consciousness in Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And you made the new, the new uh, serial sound so great. So the last I one was kind seriously. of a letdown a little bit. <laughs> I have to agree with that. So um, if this is, I would just be extremely surprised. And I need a few other people to finish it. I got to listen to the whole thing really quickly because I had a lot of time on the road this week. And uh, so I don't know anyone else who's finished it. And I'm dying to talk about it. Well, now I feel like I need to start listening. Please. As you were uh, as you were talking, I just subscribed to it on my phone, so (laughs) I'm ready to go. Are you for real? Yeah. Multitasking. (laughs) Absolutely. Multitasking. Okay, well, thanks again for listening, everyone. As always, please, you know, um, Andrew just subscribed to a different podcast on his phone. That should uh, alert you to the fact that you can subscribe to ours as well, which we would appreciate. You can subscribe. You can rate it. Leave us a note. You can email us at uh, podcast at compact.org. You can post on social media with the hashtag um, compact nation pod. And we are always looking to hear from you. So thanks so much. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Habiba, I'm wondering if you could give us some feedback on our episode. 